Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. Unto the Table Dallas, we're glad that you're here with us on this beautiful, sunny, oh, January day where it's going to be 60 degrees here in Dallas, Texas. Dallas, all of you listening on podcast around the world, especially some of you who listen in Europe where it's like really, really cold right now. But uh, we're glad that you're here either in person here at beautiful Mill Street House or if you're joining us around the world, whatever you do via our podcast. We are um, in the second week, the second week of our new study entitled The Runaway Prophet. Uh, shouldn't be too hard of a guess to figure out which book of the Bible we're going to read, but we're talking about The Runaway Prophet, right? The Runaway Prophet is the book of? Jonah. Jonah, yes, the book of Jonah, right? So we're going to be in the book of Jonah, so if you have your Bible in um, your electronic form or in print form, you're going to want to open up there, because we're going to we're going to uh, continue our study there. And as I mentioned last week, a number of you weren't here last week, so I'll try to recap briefly. Um, we're taking a little bit of a different approach. Uh, we've built we've built a history here at the table of um, honoring the Word of God for and letting the Word of God speak for itself. In other words, instead of trying to overlay our own ideas or maybe even just automatically assume the things that we've learned in Sunday school and all growing up are, are the answer or are the way to interpret Scripture, we spent the last year, um, if you remember, studying some pretty challenging texts. You all remember that? We called one of the series Perplexing Texts, remember that, where we went through about 12 or 13, including some where it was like, oh, they made fun of a prophet, so God sent bears to eat them. I mean, fun <laughs> things like that, right, where we went back and looked, and then we also spent some time, if you remember, not just looking at the Hebraic roots of our faith, but also how this idea of that Western culture and our tendency to read Scripture through Western eyes doesn't always match up with the honor-shame culture in which the Scripture were written. And so we looked at a lot of stories from that perspective of what does it mean when we look at them or we interpret them from an honor-shame instead of our own culture, which is an innocent skilled culture, right? So we're building on that. And this year in 2023... Y'all have graduated now to a, a, a 301 level course. Some of you who went to the university know you're at least a 301. Maybe, maybe 401. Maybe 401. It's one of those graduate, undergraduate Grad, Yes, it's dual credit. This is a dual credit course um, where uh, this year we're going to be looking at two categories, right? This first one in One Away Profits is what um, we might call um, a moral theological tale. In other words, we're looking at the book of Jonah less about answering the question, did it really happen? And focusing our attention on, okay, so what is it, how is it that the story has been laid out that we can naturally follow? Because when we focus in on, did it really happen, i.e., can we scientifically explain how Jonah ended up in the whale for three days underwater and all of that? We tend to miss not only the point of the story, but even the focus of the story. Because the focus of the story really isn't Jonah. Jonah's a part, a character in the story. It's a story about God and his love for humanity. Right? So we don't want to get caught up in that. So we're kind of making the case that there are alternative ways to read that honor the scripture 
but then also teach us from the way in which that story has been written. And we're doing kind of like a, a three-pronged approach, if you remember from last week. One, we're going to approach the text from a head point of view, meaning what is it the text says. And then the hard point of view, which are questions more about like, okay, so we know the scripture is not written to us, but it's written for us. So that heart piece is okay, heart piece is okay what are we to do with this information? And then finally the hands piece. Like, okay, so what does this challenge us to do in terms of, you know, Jonah had a challenge, what's the challenge for us? But because it's a story, what I'm calling a moral, that's not me, this is a, this is a, this is a category here, these moral theological stories that have part allegory, it has parts of midrash, it has parable, it has philosophical treaties, it has history, it has parody, it has satire, and although the book of Jonah is found, in the neighborhood of the Bible, prophets with books like Amos and Obadiah and Micah and Nahum, it actually fits better, we discovered last week, with the, the wisdom books, like Job, for instance, is very similar to the way that Job is written, Ecclesiastes, right? So it's more in that wisdom tradition, and we've been making the case that um, if we read the text carefully, read the text carefully, I think we might discover in how it's been written some clues into how we're supposed to really read it, all right? But if we're going to do that, we actually need to remind ourselves of the story. So the second thing that we're doing unusual for us is we're actually going to read the whole book every week. Take seven minutes. Seven minutes. So I need four people. We're going to use a common English Bible. That's what we use here at the table, just so we're all on the same page. I need, I need four people to read chapter one. Who will read chapter one? All right, we got chapter one. Mike's chapter one. Chapter two. Chapter 3, Dan, chapter 3, I need chapter 4. Chapter 4, chapter 4. All right, so this is the word of the Lord. Chapter 1. The Lord's word came to Jonah, Amate's son. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their evil has come to my attention. So Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship headed for Tarshish. He paid the fare and went aboard to go with them to Tarshish, away from the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, so that there was a great storm on the sea. The ship looked like it might be broken to pieces. The sailors were terrified, and each one cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to make it lighter. Now Jonah had gone down into the hold of the vessel to lie down and was deep in sleep. The ship's officer came and said to him, How can you possibly be sleeping so deeply? Get up! Call on your God! Perhaps the gods will give some thought to us so that we won't perish. Meanwhile, the sailors said to each other, Come on, let's cast lots so that we might learn who is to blame for this evil that's happening to us. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they said to him, Tell us, since you're the cause of this evil happening to us, what do you do, and where are you from? What's your country, and of what people are you? He said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were terrified and said to him, What have you done? The men knew that Jonah was fleeing from the Lord because he had told them. 
They said to him, What will we do about you so that the sea will become calm around us? The sea was continuing to rage. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm around you. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. The men rolled to reach dry land, but they couldn't manage it because the sea continued to rage against them. So they called on the Lord, saying, Please, Lord, don't let us perish on account of this man's life. And don't blame us for innocent blood. You are the Lord. Whatever you want, you can do. Then they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. The men worshipped the Lord with a profound reverence. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made solemn promises. Meanwhile, the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Chapter 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called out to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. From the belly of the underworld, I cried out for help. You have heard my voice. You would cast me into the depths, in the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounds me. All your strong waves and rushing water passed over me. So I said, I have been driven away from your sight. Will I ever look on your holy temple? Waters have grasped me to the point of death. The deep surrounds me. Seaweed is wrapped around my head, at the base of the undersea mountains. I have sunk <coughs> down to the underworld. Its bars held me with no end in sight. When my endurance was weakening, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those deceived by worthless things lose their chance for mercy, but me I will offer a sacrifice to you with a voice of thanks. That which I have promised I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Chapter 3. The Lord's word came to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to Nineveh, that great city. Declare against it the proclamation that I'm commanding you. And Jonah got up and went to Nineveh, according to the Lord's word. Now Nineveh was indeed an enormous city, three days walk across. Jonah started into the city walking one day, and he cried out, Just forty days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and put on mourning clothes, from the greatest of them to the least significant. When the word of it reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, stripped himself, to, stripped himself of his robe, covered himself with mourning clothes, and sat in ashes. Then he announced, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his officials, neither human nor animal, cattle nor flock, will taste anything, no grazing and no drinking water. Let humans and animals alike be put on mourning clothes, and let them call upon God forcefully, and let all persons stop their evil behavior and the violence that is under their control. He thought, who knows? God may see this and turn from his wrath so that we might not perish. God saw what they were doing, that they had ceased their evil behavior. So God stopped planning to destroy them, and he didn't do it. Chapter 4. But Jonah thought this was utterly wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Come on, Lord! Wasn't this precisely my point when I was back in my own land? This is why I fled to Tarshish earlier. I know that you are a merciful and compassionate God, very patient, full of faithful love, and willing not to destroy. At this point, Lord, you may as well take my life from me, because it would be better for me to die than to live. The Lord responded, Is your anger a good thing? But 
Israel went out from the city and sat down east of the city. There he made himself a hut and sat under it in the shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a shrub, and it grew over Jonah, providing shade for his head and saving him from his misery. Jonah was very happy about the shrub, but God provided a worm the next day at dawn, and it attacked the shrub so that it died. Then as the sun rose, God provided a dry east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint. He begged that he might die, saying, it's better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, is your anger about the shrub a good thing? Jonah said, yes, my anger is good, even to the point of death. But the Lord said, you pitied the shrub for which you didn't work and which you didn't raise. It grew in a night and perished in a night. Yet for my part, can't I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? So every time we read the story, it's like you, you should be picking up, right, on some repetitive themes, right? You see a lot of the language of going up, 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 going down, down, down. We're going to look at a few other things today, too. And as we discovered last week when we looked at only the first three verses of chapter one, that when we first start reading the story, you're thinking that the reason that Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh is because he's afraid of the Ninevites. Because they were a barbaric people, and they, they had been, you know, annoying Israel for generations, right? But then we discover by reading the entire story, like we did today again, that in chapter 4 it says the real reason he didn't want to go, does anybody pick that up? Because he didn't want God to forgive them. He didn't really want God to be merciful to the people of Nineveh, right? So we find out all kinds of things in the story, right? Today our focus is going to be on Jonah and the sailors. So that's verses 4 through the end of the first chapter. But um, sailors, I would argue, and if you like stories about the ocean, then you know sailors don't have the greatest reputation in literature and culture. Do you say that's a fair statement? Yes. I mean, they're usually portrayed as socially and emotionally distant. They're violent. They're plunderers. They seem to always have bad hygiene. Yeah. yeah, and certainly they have foul mouths, right? So you have, I mean, think Treasure Island, think Peter Pan, think Pirates of the Caribbean or Caribbean, depending upon how you want to say it. And you could also add that they sometimes are obsessively and destructively chasing after white whales, but that's an entire other story. For those of you who don't know, that's a reference to? Okay, good. All right. So none of these morally questionable actions take place in our story. But it does, it does seem that we are meant to look on these sailors, at least at the surface, as, okay, maybe less, less than reputable. They should be a comparison to Jonah the prophet, the one called of God. They should be seen as kind of the, the opposite or the antonym, if you will, to him. So right off the bat, our story gets a wildly gets wildly entertaining, especially when you read it um, through the original Hebrew. So looking at verses four through sixteen, and some of you don't read Hebrew naturally, that's okay. We're going to look at the English to start with. What are some of the words that you that that you would use here to describe this picture of what's happening in chapter one, verses four through really sixteen? Go to 17. It's one of those weird chapter breaks. 
Did you notice that where they kind of stick that one verse and it really anyway? But that's all about chapter breaks that aren't there. What are some words? What are what is what is the picture? How do you see this in your mind's eye? That describe what's going on. Yeah, or anything you know. As you hear it and you read it, what do you see in your mind's eye, and what brings you there? I hear the great wind and the great storm. It's right. a mess. All right, and that's to sailors. All right, to say, so when sailors are saying it's bad. It must really be bad, because, like, you know, you go around people and they're like, oh, winds are 13 knots out of the out of the east, and waves are 17 to 22. We're like, oh, sure, we'll just go out. We're all sitting there going. And they're throwing things overboard, which means, yeah. I mean, they're willing to give up things that are valuable to them to try to save lives. Yeah, even, like, valuable to them in that is likely their cargo, right, the thing that they're delivering. Remember we said that, sorry, one quick, remember we said that, Nineveh is at the top of the Tigris River. I said Euphrates last week, I misspoke. The Tigris River, so it's north and east of them, about four or 500 miles. He gets on a boat down in Joppa. He's going to Tarshish, which is on the Spanish coast. It's the Spanish Riviera. Literally, that's what it is. Sun and surf and my top. Oh, sorry. Sun and surf and... Um, Beautiful coconut drinks, right? And Nineveh is arid, desert, massive city. All right, go ahead. They're attributing what's happening to an action against somebody that's done something wrong. All right, so their immediate um, worldview idea is that this is happening because someone did something evil that their God is punishing them for. So their immediate thought is, not too much like us, right? We don't. We wouldn't say that publicly. But the first question that we ask ourselves when something challenging happens in our life is, "What? Come on now. What did I do?" Yeah. Well, you might be. The first question might be, "Why is this happening?" And the first answer to that question is to ask ourselves, "Did I do something to deserve this?" Right. So that's their natural take. Good. What else? What else do we see? There are layers of desperate. They like try everything they can do, and then they cry out to their gods, and that doesn't work. So they do lots to see who it is. Then they figure out it's the prophet, but they don't want to kill him, so they try to row to shore. And they can't row to shore, so finally they. And so uh, what I love about you seeing that is a good moral theological tale, right? A story like this builds, right? It's pulling you into the story. It's getting worse and worse. Like it starts out bad. But then it gets worse and worse and worse, if you will. Good. What else? I'm still taken aback by just like Jonah sleeping in the hold. And yeah. the sailor's like, what are you doing? I mean, it echoes again later when Jesus is with the prophets and they're in a storm and they ask Jesus, why aren't you freaking out? But for different reasons. Yes. Yeah. And I've got something on that one, I think. Because uh, I, I compared that story yesterday, and the, the word sleeping that Jesus did is not the same sleeping that Jonah did. Jesus just fell asleep because right. he was tired. Yeah. Jonah, the word is radam, which is like stupefy and to stun. Yeah. So that that's how he slept. He. Like, you know, Boom. Yep, exactly. Yeah, like, exactly. And what's what's interesting about this um, is that there are a couple of rhetorical devices here that help support my idea. Remember, our thesis is this is a moral theological tale. That when we get all caught up in asking, did this really happen? 
which is completely, God can do anything he wants, right? God can keep someone for three days in the belly of fish if he desired to do that, right? But by asking that question, it might get us off, off track. And so these rhetorical devices get used right off the bat. And the first of those we see here is hyperbole. So hyperbole again, somebody define it. I know some of you English makers here can help us with hyperbole is what? Exaggeration. Exaggeration for? Yeah, for effect. All right, so we have some hyperbole again, right? An exaggeration for effect. There's a repetition of a hyperbolic term here in chapter one. So if you take a look at it, see if you can find that word. It's repeated multiple times, or a variation of it. I think four times, but y'all take a look and see if you can find it. Anybody? The word Earl? Well, look at verse 2. I'll give you a hint. Verse 2, verse 4, verse 10, and verse 17. So you have terrified or fear, right? That's verse 2. What else do you see? Great. So you have great... So you have a great city. You have a great storm in verse 4. Evil. So, let's say again. Evil. Okay. Terrified is, could be, in Hebrew it's translated as greatly afraid. We use the word terrified. And then in verse 17 there is a... A great fish. I'm sorry. Slowly but slowly we're going to pull it out, right? But the problem is, the reason that you're struggling to see it is because we're using a couple of different words in English. They translate it, trying to help us understand. They use the word terrified. But notice they use the word terrified in verse 2 in the English. In Hebrew, it's just they were their fear was great. But then the next time, as we saw and Daniel pointed out to us, it's getting worse. They're, they're more afraid. So they do the next thing, and they're more afraid, and they're more afraid. You see what's happening? And so that repetition of great, big, you know, fear, great big fish is all part of the way the story is being written so that we can see a progress. They, are, they start out afraid, and then they get really, really, really afraid. All right? So just like that, the author has, you know, kind of up the ante in the story, and he's taking something that's simple, and he's like, every one of them, it's like the next thing. It's like, oh, what's happening next? Oh, there's a great storm. They're getting more and more afraid, and more and more afraid. They're being more desperate. Everything they're doing is more desperate, because when they throw things overboard, that's their cargo. That's their livelihood, right? So they're throwing off valuable things. When they finally get to the point where they're going to throw a human being over the boat, they must be terrified. The fear of what could happen to them overcame their fear of tossing another human being into the water. Hyperbole, that's the first thing, all right? But this one's a little bit difficult. The second one, I think, is personification. So if you were here this morning for the kids, for the, the family table, one of the stories that we read had this personification in it. So personification... No English grammar flashbacks here. But I guess there really are English flashbacks here. What is personification? Anybody? You remember from your middle school English class? You're giving 
uh, human characteristics to inanimate objects? Right, so you're attributing human-like characteristics to something that is non-human. So if hyperbole adds like a drama to the story, then what does personification add to a story? Relatability. All right, relatability, I like that. How so? So you're able to see something like you, like, like for example, a table, like, it's just there, but try to understand the attributes, how you feel to it, it makes it, makes you able to connect. Right. So a good storyteller is doing that hyperbole to, a, to make his effect, his or her effect, but they're also using personification to kind of draw you into the story. You're not the sailor, but you're trying to connect. All right, what else? What else does it add to a story? Personification, besides relatability. Anything? You start to get the, the feel of the emotion. You can share an emotion okay. with something that doesn't necessarily have an emotion. So it almost attributes cause. Okay. Can we get back up? What part of the text are you referring to where you're seeing personification? So that's what we're going to discover. So take a look now and see if we can find it. It's there. I'll give you a hint. Um, I think it starts out at the end of verse 4. Is it the sea? I think it's the sea raging. So, because the sea is raging. The sea okay, that's, that's what. Yeah, so the idea that, that's, you grabbed it, the sea is raging. The idea that somebody can rage, the sea can do something to themselves, right, is that idea of personification. That's great. You caught that one. And there's one other one there in verse 4. The ship looked like it might be breaking in pieces. Or in the, in the Hebrew translation, it says, it looks like the boat is about ready to break itself apart. This idea that the boat is living and alive and can do something, right? So the boat is now part of the story, right? Acting on its own. It's about ready to break up. Uh, break itself apart. So if we were to look at those two things, one, in English it says that um, the, the boat was about ready to break up, and in Hebrew it says, hey, the boat is about ready to destroy itself or break itself apart, it changes how we read the story. She threatened, that's the better word, thank you, I was looking for the word in my mind, she threatens to break up. Does a boat threaten to break up? That's a human thing, right? But it changes the way we read it. How so? If you read it as the boat's just this inanimate object that's being acted on. It's a science thing. That's like... Okay. It has agency and intent. Okay. Agency, intent. Isn't that a sailor thing, though, to personify your boat? Yeah. Aren't boats women? Amplifies the kind of fear factor. Okay. Hearing the boat creak um, and moan and groan under the weight of the waves and the wind. And it puts you in the story. Yes. yes. Right? You, you're like, oh, it's it's fear. It, you know, it's going to break itself apart. As opposed to, if you just look at it from the English, like, oh, the boat's breaking apart. You're kind of observing from a distance. Yeah. Right? So I bring all of this up to say these are some of them, we're going to be doing this each week, kind of a couple of clues that help us then say this is being written for effect. 
not as a historical narrative, although there is obviously history and narrative. These are real people that we can identify. Jesus quotes it later on, which is going to give us some interesting um, support. We know that Nineveh was a real place, but more and more we're going to find some of these clues. So now let's use our head and our heart and our hand approach quickly and see if we can't um, determine a few more things. So let's take a deeper look at verses 4 through 17 again and say, so if you were to um, sum up in two or three sentences what happened on board the ship, how would you describe that? What's happening aboard the ship? We've touched on that a little bit. But how do you see it? Panic. Sorry? There's like a, a lot of panic going on. All right. Chaos, searching for an understanding of why. Searching for answers or an understanding. Yeah. A lot of scrambling that's scrambling. going around where you've got the contrast of Jonah who's just, you know, sleeping. Gotcha. Yeah. You, you got that contrast? Good. You got a sleeping Jonah down with the boat. How, how do you sleep like that? I don't know. But no. also helplessness. Like, there, there's nothing they can do to fix it. They did the things, and it's still threatening to break apart. Yeah, it's, they've moved from the natural to the supernatural looking for a solution. They've done all the physical things. I'm sure they've pulled the sail up and they've thrown everything overboard, right? And now they're going, okay, clearly there's a god that's pissed off. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, so you have that in Lord, our translation, capital O, L, capital O, capital R, capital D is a translation of the Hebrew word yeah. Yahweh as opposed to Elohim, which is the lowercase g gods, right? So they first search for the, whatever gods, right. regional gods that they do, and then they're like, oh no, this is Elohim. So what do we learn about, I'm sorry, this is Yahweh, what do we learn about God, Yahweh, from this text? This is the question we ask in the head section every week. What do we learn about God? What's revealed to us about God, how he works, what he does? Do we learn anything? One thing, like if he asks you to do something. <laughs> he means it. He's not playing. He's what? He's not playing. You're learning. He's, when he tells you to do something, he's not playing? It's not a suggestion. It's not, you've been voluntold, not volunteered. Yeah. Okay. And, and he has mercy for the Well, there's a weird, I find it's a weird something in between that, like, justice and mercy, that he lets him run. Like, he doesn't put up a, like, doesn't stop him. Doesn't stop him at the boat. Doesn't stop him before he gets to the boat. Let's him get all the way on the boat, out into the sea where they can't get back to land. That's that free what, what is that? Yeah. Maybe he wanted to let Jonah. Yeah, but he doesn't let Jonah's mistake punish the right, sailors. Right, right. So we learn cargo. That. <laughs> yeah. Other than their cargo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think they got well, it. and they could be at fault because Jonah said he was running from God. And maybe they should have said, well, well, maybe you shouldn't get on this boat. And it does indicate that they knew that, right? right. Yep. That they knew he that he was getting on the boat to run away from God. Yeah, right. it's part of the checklist when boarding right. customers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. 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 To be fair, right. from God. Right. we got a big review, sorry. To be fair, we need to remember that this is our Western view of God. Like, So God is... 
to us in the West is attributal. When we think of God, we think of his attributes, right? So then we end up with this, this view of God is like this or this or that, right? So remember, in Hebrew thought, and in this day and time, right, all of this is happening where they believe that gods were not necessarily attributal. They were locational, right? So they would be like, hey, you know, Abraham was afraid in the story. He didn't want to leave his homeland because he was going to have to leave his God and go to a new place where he didn't know the God. So that idea of running away from God sounds crazy to us. Like, don't you read scripture? Did you know what you know what the psalmist wrote about going away from God? Remember the culture, time frame. They thought if I leave this area, it's possible for me to separate myself from God. All right, Mike. Uh, going back to what Luther was saying about how God didn't stop him. Um, maybe God was trying to make the point of not obeying me how it affects those around me. Mm -hmm. So that we don't we don't sin in a vacuum as we've talked about here at the table before, right? Your actions have consequences on the people around you. Good. Well, and also proving oh, sorry. No, that he's also not locational. Correct. Right? That he has no borders. Correct. Yeah. Go ahead. I think it it makes you think of more like a parent because you have to give you one chance. You don't listen. Okay, I'll give you another chance. And listen, and then you you really it's like you did, I don't do this. You didn't do it. You did the opposite, and now I'm going to make you do it. But he also he also was willing to throw himself overboard to save these sailors he just met, and was unwilling to go to Nineveh and save an entire race of people. <laughs> Which, and by the way, the, the people at the boat in Joppa, the, the indication from the story is, are they Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles? They're Gentiles. So they are the same kind of people, in Jonah's mind, pagan people, right, that he was being called to go to Nineveh, right? So that's a great, that's another big piece of the story to catch on. Do we learn anything about the sailors, the religious views of the sailors, and what, if anything, do, the, well, just, do we learn anything about the religious uh, backing of the sailors? Is there anything in the story that tells us about that? Well, they are religious because they pray to their gods. I was too more desperate than religious. They're like, okay, okay, who I have to pray to as long as something happens. Yeah, no one's an atheist in a foxhole. Yeah. <laughs> Language. Yeah. I think, but didn't they ultimately decide that Jonah's God was the biggest and most powerful God? Yeah. I mean, they kind of were... Yeah, yeah but, and what's interesting, Mimi, about that, that's a great observation, it's like, what in the story makes them do that? But I don't Land know. in the sea. They're scared. No, but I mean, what happens in the story where they go, oh, you really are? As soon as they throw Jonah off, he just tells them. When he asked them where, when they asked Jonah where he's from and what country, because that's going to, it's locational, it's going to tell them who's God, who's their God, who's God. So I don't think that it's about that that God was better or more powerful. Yeah. It's just that was the God associated with Jonah. That, that was the only God they had. And Jonah said, throw me over the storm, will stop. They threw him over the storm, stop. Well, no, they, at first they were too scared to because they thought if they threw over God, God's man, right. God would be mad at them, so they tried not to throw. Him. But then he said, "Throw me over, and it'll stop. I'll be, it'll be fine." After he said that, they tried to reassure <coughs> right. him because you know, they were too scared to. He he introduced himself as I am a Hebrew. Yeah. And if they know anything about Hebrew history, you're like, what happened to Pharaoh? Yeah. And he didn't let the Hebrews go. Yeah. So as soon as he says that, they're like. Whoa. 
Don't blame us for innocent blood. As they're trying to come up with an alternative to right. hurling evil. Yeah. Sunday paper telling us here's the events that happened, right? You would, you know, the headline would read something. What would the headline read if we're reading New York Times Sunday paper? Man, yeah, man, oh man, you know, uh, crew contemplates throwing man overboard to stop storm or whatever. And we'd get all of these details about this, right? But because it's story, we pick it up on. Well, they tried to get closer and closer so that when they did throw him over, what's the idea? He's got a chance. He's got some bit of chance to get there. All right? Good. I love it that you guys are picking up some of this, right? Um, and so when we talk about our hands now, changing from the minds now to a little bit of a different approach. So amidst the storm and the mess of Jonah's life, God revealed himself to the sailors and they responded. We've seen that, right? But let me go back and ask this question. Does, and it seems like a crazy question, but does God need Jonah to accomplish his purpose in Nineveh? No. I mean, we could all pretty much say God doesn't need us to do that. Or does he? I mean, we all said no, but... He called him. Okay, so why? Why Jonah? Why if God doesn't need Jonah, because we all answered, right? God doesn't need Jonah, right? Well, it doesn't need the thoughts. Why Moses? Why Joseph? You know, I mean, yeah. Couldn't it be as much about Jonah as it is about Nineveh? God called on someone who is reluctant to perform a task. It's like a dual lesson. Like he saves a city and teaches a skeptical prophet at the same time. When I ask my six-year-old to come help me make something in the kitchen, mm -hmm. I don't need her help, but I want her to be there to experience it with her and for her to learn. Mm -hmm. I so, love that. Mm -hmm. yeah. I also wonder about uh, Jonah's history, though. The, the story of Jonah before this episode, we talked last week about possibly his hate of Nineveh being so much attached to maybe something that happened to his, maybe his family was affected by those those Assyrians, you know, he had a distinct thing about Nineveh in particular that that very likely his family had been touched by them in a, in a really horrible way. And so him being the prophet that goes to do that would really show something about his God also. And, and I love that you both have picked up on both of those things because I think what's so beautiful in the picture is we all agree God does not need Jonah to accomplish his mission in Nineveh, to save the people of Nineveh. But he calls Jonah, and I would suggest he does the same to us. He invites us to be part of the mission because he wanted to do something in the life of Jonah, or in us, through that process, right? So we're invited into the mission. Here at the table we talk about the scripture is a four-part story, right? It starts with creation, 
And we know the story of the fall, right? And then Jesus' story is one about redemption. redemption. And then we have this part, right? We call it the fourth part, which is restoration. restoration, where God says, we're calling you to be part of my mission. I don't need you, but I want to do something in you through it. And so I think one of the things we have to take from a story like this, when we're reading it and we're going, hey, no, God doesn't need us. God didn't need Jonah. But he called him and he called us, right? We have a call, just like Jonah, right? Where do we find that call? Anybody? Yeah, great commission, right? Go into all the world. That's Nineveh, right? But into all the world and preach the gospel, make disciples. We have the same call. Does he need us to do that? But he, he calls us and he equips us and says, I want to do something in you while we're accomplishing this. I want to restore you, but I also want you to be agents of restoration as well. Mike? It also keeps in place free will. Okay. Because he doesn't need us. He could just snap his finger and boom, everybody's a follower of the Lord. But it keep, he loves us enough to keep that free will element in our lives. That's true. It's such a different way to, it's such a different perspective. I mean, I thought it was interesting, like Phil asked why, he's like, you know, he brought up, I thought, a brilliant analogy about, you know, six-year-old and her, the history. It's like, it's not about the end objective solely. It's, as you've been doing, it's like he's very interested in the story and all of us who play a part in that. He's very much interested in our here and now. That's interesting. And David, it comes to mind Saul and Paul's experience. I was thinking, how do we know what Jonah, we don't have any history as far as I can know of, of what happened to Jonah after the story, what he did. We do have the story of Saul and Paul. So, I mean, you never know what God is going to do in your life if you follow what he has. His... And what's so beautiful about the story, and, and reading the entire story, like if we were doing it as we normally approach stories, right, where we're kind of going piece by piece, we know the end of the story, we do it anyway, but we're reminded of it every time when he sits there and he says, and the people of Nineveh repented. Think about the size of that city. Three days walk. So Hebrew thinking, three days walk, is probably something about somewhere between 30 and 35, maybe 40 miles across, you could do about 10, 12 miles in a walk, right? 10 or 12 miles in a walk. So you're talking about 35 miles across. That's a big city. And Jonah goes there and, and, and proclaims God's mercy, and the people repent. Even the animals repent. <laughs> Everything. Yeah. Go ahead. A couple others. Right here. It, it, just, it makes me think of me nerding out here. We're talking about the whole hands in my, in my head of God. I was like, okay, so before you can use anything or transplant something into a body, you can do an ectomy, you can remove the cancer or whatever. In fact, <coughs> this whole story is like God purifying Jonah in order to transplant him into his body. I like that. What has come to my mind uh, while reading this each week? was um, in chapter 4 when he says, uh, you know, I knew you were merciful, and that's, it would be better for me to die, basically, it's me summarizing. Um, 
I, would, I, I fled because you were merciful. I, he knew right away, as soon as God called him, that God wanted to reach Nineveh. He was going to be merciful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he was like, nope. Now, I always thought, okay, that's because Jonah had a bone to pick with Nineveh because Nineveh's horrible and has been horrible to the Israelites. But I think even more than that, it was, I'm going to go, you're going to be merciful, I'm going to then come back home, and my people are going to hate me for this. And I think that God had such a heart for his people to actually show, look, look how merciful I am. That the, 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 those that you hated the most, those that have been so awful, truly awful human beings, how much more is my mercy cover the stuff that you guys do in your day to day? Um, and, and in the process of Jonah fleeing, he also reached these sailors who, you know that they've interacted with every kind of person and traveling. I mean, the, the first question was, whose God is this? They've interacted with all the gods. They know all the gods. And they figured out which God it was, and they were like, oh, crap. <laughs> this one's powerful. This one's powerful. And so, you know that God's story then so. reached many, many more people through the sailors. And to the people in Nineveh. Yeah, so it's it's like it is probably enough for it to have just been about Jonah's heart, but then it was all of Nineveh, and then I just can only imagine that that story came back to the Israelites, and the sailors took it beyond who knows where, right? Like it just doesn't stop. His his name will be proclaimed, and it's really cool to see that. I've never I always thought it was just it's just yeah. about Jonah. No. <laughs> Good. So what we're putting up every week is, and hopefully somebody took advantage of, not all of them took advantage of the resources that we're putting up on. Uh, they're already up there. I put them up last evening. So the the it kind of begs the question um, now, of personally, at least for me, um, of asking the question of ourselves: Who is our Nineveh? Right. And that's not something that you. You do lightly in a group of 50 people, right? So what I've done is on the Church Flare app, um, if you go to the, the messages section, I put a series of questions that's called Going Deeper, where you can look at some you know, different portions of the text where I continue to try to make my case that this is a, uh, this is a theolo moral theological story that's meant to tell us something about God and our relationship with it. And then getting personal, which is questions like the one I just shared, which is like, who is my Nineveh? So you can go on any time during the week and, and do that and grab that from our church flare app, Mike. Does our Nineveh have to be a who? It doesn't have to be. It can be a place. That's why I love it that you can you can do any of that. You can answer. That's the whole getting personal. It's whatever it means, it means to you. Okay. Good work, everyone. All right, we close our gatherings here at the table. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.